You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our reading this afternoon comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 24. The last verses of that Gospel, which include the account of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ into heaven. And that will have our attention this afternoon as we look at Lord's Day 18 of the Heidelberg Catechism. So, as we do that, let's read from Luke 24, beginning at verse 36. So the two men who were walking with the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Emmaus, not recognizing Him, have come and have told the disciples about their experience. And that's where we pick up in verse 36 as we read the word of the Lord. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do you, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and arise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 18 of the Heidelberg Catechism concerning the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ into heaven. What do you confess when you say he ascended into heaven? That Christ, before the eyes of his disciples, was taken up from the earth into heaven, and that he is there for our benefit until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Is Christ, then, not with us until the end of the world as he promised us? Christ is true man and true God. With respect to his human nature, he is no longer on earth, but with respect to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. But are the two natures in Christ not separated from each other if his human nature is not present wherever his divinity is? Not at all. For his divinity has no limits and is present everywhere. So it must follow that his divinity is indeed beyond the human nature which he has taken on and nevertheless is within this human nature and remains personally united with it. How does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? Well, first... He is our advocate in heaven before his Father. Second, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. 
And third, he sends us his spirit as a counterpledge, by whose power we seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and not the things that are on earth. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we come in the catechism this afternoon to the doctrine of the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. Jesus Christ, as we confess, was taken up from the earth into heaven, and that he's there for our benefit until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. And that leads us then to ask ourselves, is this something that we pay much attention to? The ascension of Jesus Christ, that which has been a reality for the church ever since he was taken up until the present time, the last 2,000 years. Our Lord Jesus Christ has been in heaven, that place to which he ascended. It is a very important doctrine. It's been confessed by the church through the ages. It actually takes up three clauses in the Apostles' Creed. He ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God, and from there he'll come to judge the living and the dead. All three of those are concerning his ascension into heaven. But does the ascension... Does the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ was taken up from this earth, does it capture our imagination? Does it, does it capture our attention? Does it capture our, our praise and our thanks? And do we live in light of the fact that this has happened? That it is a reality for us, as it has been a reality for the church through the ages? You see, the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven hasn't captured the imagination of the the marketers of our world. Christmas certainly has. That's become a big boon. Lots of attention given to Christmas. Lots of attention given to Easter, although even more than Christmas, the attention that's given to Easter in so many stores and places in our culture is not the attention that it ought to have. But yet still, lots of attention given to Christmas and Easter What about the ascension of Jesus Christ? Hasn't really seemed to have caught on in our broader culture. This doctrine of the ascension, in fact, has been cast off by many scholars, especially in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. 70s. Some well-known liberal scholars had sort of had enough of the ascension. They decided that either it was a a mythological creation of the early church. They had just made it up to satisfy their ideas about what really happened to the resurrected Christ. Or it never really mattered that much in the first place. That you can just ignore it and it won't make that much difference to your Christian faith. Is that true? Even if we don't deny the ascension, how significant Do we understand its impact to be to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the the message of the Bible? How much are we aware of this reality? Well, the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ is integrally connected to all the works of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can't stop at his death. We can't stop at his resurrection. We need to understand his ascension 
as it is vitally important to our Christian lives and to the life of his whole church. It was a vital transition for our Lord as he went to that most prominent place in the entire universe, to the right hand of God. And we now even continue still today to receive the blessings that he pours down upon his church from that place of prominence. Brothers and sisters, this is a truth that the church has always gloried in, has found great joy and comfort in, has basked in the blessings of as Christ, our mediator, sits at the right hand of God with arms raised, just as he was taken up into heaven with his arms raised. So they have continued to be raised in blessing over his people. Until he will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's the truth of what we confess when we say that Christ, our mediator, has ascended into heaven. And that's what we will consider this afternoon, that Christ, our mediator, has ascended into heaven. He has ascended into heaven. It is a reality. And we'll consider the fact, the reality of the situation itself and how God's word speaks so clearly to this reality and hangs so much upon this reality. We'll consider also the reality in the ascension that it was our own flesh and blood that was taken up from the earth and now sits at the right hand of God. And then we'll consider the present realities that we receive as our ascended Lord pours out his blessings upon the church. The blessings that we receive from his ascension to the right hand of God. So first, let's consider the reality of the ascension. If we're going to appreciate the significance of the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven, we need to understand its significance in God's word. In God's word. And we've already read from Luke 24, the passage that speaks about his ascension into heaven. The end of Mark has the same thing. But, Some people have said, well, only Luke and Mark record those. What about John and what about Matthew? They don't even mention the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. Well, it's true that the death and resurrection by and large had the the main focus of the gospel writer's attention. It is also true that the rest of the New Testament builds on the reality of the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. The Apostle Peter, in Acts chapter 2, in that famous speech in Pentecost, so the, the pouring out of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ upon his church references and calls to mind the reality of the ascension into heaven in Acts chapter 2, verse 32. He says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact exalted to the right hand of God, that is the ascension, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit who has poured out what you now see and hear. Pentecost, the the reception of the Holy Spirit from Jesus Christ, the, the establishment of the church with this mission, the same mission that we still have, is caught up in the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God. He continues there, for David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Christ was exalted by the Father. From there, he poured out the Holy Spirit upon the church. And in his being lifted up, the Father demonstrated to the whole world that this Jesus was both Lord and Christ. There's more testimony to the ascension. Stephen himself saw the ascended Lord. And he speaks about that in Acts chapter 7, verse 55. Acts chapter 7, at 54, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God in fulfillment of the prophecy of the prophet Malachi. The Apostle Paul was struck down on the road to Damascus and he saw a bright light from heaven. And although that bright light blinded him, we know the source of that bright light when he heard a voice calling him to stop kicking against the goats and to bow down and worship and to give his life in the service of the ascended Lord, Jesus Christ. And that same Paul would later write of the ascension of Jesus Christ in many of his letters. For example, in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, he would tell the Philippians and us also that we need to have the same attitude of Jesus Christ, who was obedient, coming from the right hand of God, becoming a man, going even to the point of death, but was raised by the Father and exalted to the highest place in the whole universe from where he receives worship. And later in that same letter, the Apostle Paul would remind the Philippians that their citizenship is in heaven, where Christ is, and from where he will come one day to judge the living and the dead. So Peter testifies to the ascension of Jesus Christ. Stephen does. Paul does. And there's more as well. John may not record the ascension himself, but as we sang in, I believe it was hymn 39, we sang from John 14, where the Lord Jesus says, I'm going away. I'm going to the Father. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you. A place for his disciples in heaven. The author of Hebrews exalts in the ascension of Jesus Christ. It was he whom the Holy Spirit inspired to write in Hebrews 4, verse 14. Therefore, we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And again, in Hebrews chapter 8, after spending many words speaking about the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, he brings it all to bear in chapter 8, verse 1, when he says, the point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And of course, we've been spending many weeks going through the book of Revelation. That book, which is a letter from the ascended Lord himself to his church. 
that book in which he demonstrates himself for the church that he is at the right hand of God. And for all those who are suffering under persecution, who are experiencing the hardships that they experienced in the early church, they can lift their eyes to heaven and see and believe that Jesus Christ is there, that he is in control, that he is watching over them, that he is hearing the prayers come from the saints and that he will one day return to make all thing, all things right. And there are many, many more passages we could reference as well. We haven't even spoken of all the passages that speak about the kingship and the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ, nor of those that speak about his coming in judgment on the last day, which completes the purpose of Christ's ascension. And should we mention all of the doctrines for which the ascension itself is vital? The two natures of our Lord Jesus Christ, the very nature of the Trinity, the Messiahship of Christ, our justification, our sanctification, the process of our being made holy, which Christ does from the throne in heaven, our glorification on the last day, the atonement, etc., etc., etc. The disciples were witnesses of the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. And they carried out their lives, they carried out their lives even to the point of death in service of the ascended Lord. Everything they wrote, everything they did, they did in the knowledge of his ascension into heaven. They lived their lives in light of it. They lived their lives in hope of it. Their lives were centered on the fact that Jesus Christ had ascended to the right hand of God in heaven. And the new covenant church is the creation of the ascended Lord who poured out his spirit at Pentecost. We are the church which continues to benefit in incalculable and immeasurable ways from the presence of our mediator at the right hand of God in heaven. Christ, our mediator, has ascended to the blessing and benefit of us as people. Let's consider one such benefit, which the Catechism spends a fair bit of time on. Spends a fair bit of time on the fact that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven is our own flesh and blood. That is, that he went up into heaven as true man. True God, yes, and also true man. And you may wonder, why this extra attention Why the extra attention of the catechism to fully two question and answers about the fact that Christ in heaven is true God and true man? You might wonder this especially because now, at least as far as I'm aware, this is not a big deal for a lot of people. It's not a big deal. The fact that Christ is both God and man, even though this has been a significant point of controversy in the history of the church. And it was, in fact, a significant point of controversy in the time and place in which the catechism was written. And that's why it goes to some lengths to make this clear. And we'll spend a bit of time on that, and we'll we'll draw out from that, and we'll see the importance of confessing, as we do in the Athanasian Creed, the truth of what God reveals in his word about the two natures of Jesus Christ. You see, the catechism was written in the country of Germany. In the mid-1500s, the time of the Reformation. And as you may know, 
Germany was the place where Luther was most prominent and where what is, has become known as Lutheranism gained a foothold. Well, in Lutheranism, in the time that the Catechism was written, there developed a peculiar teaching about the nature of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ in relating to his two natures. This teaching promoted the idea that Christ, in his ascension into heaven, was present everywhere in the universe, not only in his divinity, but also in his humanity. That is, that wherever Christ's divinity was present, and we we acknowledge that God is present everywhere, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their divinity are present everywhere in the whole world. While the Lutherans, some Lutherans, and became the prominent view, taught that where Christ's divinity is, there his humanity must also be. Otherwise, if you have his divinity somewhere where his humanity is not, you are dividing the two natures of Christ. And so they thought his humanity was also present throughout the universe. That is, Christ was physically present in some mysterious and unexplainable way, but still physically present everywhere in the universe. Now, why hang on to a teaching like this? Well, you may have some familiarity with the Lutheran teaching on the Lord's Supper. They say that Christ is physically present in the bread and wine. That the bread and wine aren't changed to his body and blood. That's what the Roman Catholics teach. But they do say that in the bread and wine, Christ is physically present somehow. In, under, behind. That's what Luther said. Somehow physically present in that bread and wine. And we take that by faith when we take the Lord's Supper. Well, that was the, what Luther had taught about the Lord's Supper, although, as far as I know, he had never tried to explain how that could happen. But later, Luther, Lutherans developed this idea that wherever Christ is spiritually present, there he must be physically present as well. Also in the Lord's Supper. If we say that Christ is spiritually present, as we say, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that we partake spiritually of Jesus Christ, they say, well, he must also be physically physically present there as well. Okay, this is all a little technical, maybe a little too technical, you might say. But the issue is important. For one reason, it's because of this. The kind of questions that are present in the catechism are the very questions that a new believer, a child, or anyone for that matter, may ask about the Lord Jesus Christ. If he's present everywhere, how is it that he's only present only present physically at the right hand of God? These are the kind of questions that come to mind as we reflect on the reality of the ascension. And so the catechism guides us in giving a solid answer that fits with the, what the church has always confessed. And that comes to a second important reason a second reason why it's important to know this is that it is a part of our history. And this is the truth that the church went through fire and water to come to in the early days. The point of contention about the natures of Jesus Christ that resulted in the Athanasian Creed, which we read earlier. 
Let's turn to the Athanasian Creed and see how the church has always confessed the two natures of Jesus Christ. We're looking at page 498. On page 498 in the Athanasian Creed, we see that we confess that Jesus Christ is one person with two natures. That is, he is perfect God in Article 32 the very beginning of page 498, perfect God and perfect man. But not two people, but one Christ. That's in article 34. Although he is God and man, nevertheless not two, but one Christ. And then notice article 35. He is one, not by the transformation of his divinity into flesh, not that his divinity becomes like his flesh, but by the taking up of his humanity into God. His humanity does not take upon the characteristics of divinity, like making it everywhere present in the whole universe, but rather is added to his full divinity. Is his perfect, but also limited humanity. So he remains true human flesh, not a human flesh which becomes divine, but a human flesh which is one with his divinity. And so the answers of Lord's Day 18 become clear. Jesus remains present with his disciples in his divinity as he is present everywhere. He continues to rule over them by his majesty. He supplies them with his gracious gifts by means of his spirit. Yet his two natures don't separate. His human nature remains united with his divine nature, even though his divine nature is not limited by his human nature. What you realize, as we affirm the reality of Christ's human bodily ascension, is the significance of having our own flesh and blood in heaven. Yes, his body is a glorified body. Yes, it is clothed now with honor and with majesty, but it is still fundamentally human flesh. He can eat a fish. It's still human flesh. True human flesh in a way that our present human flesh, which suffers the effect of the curse, is only a distortion of. Jesus Christ in the human flesh is true human flesh. And so Christ is present in the flesh as our mediator. Christ is not present in heaven at the right hand of God, who is someone who is only there for us. He is there at the right hand of God as us. He is one of us, like his brothers, the author of Hebrews says, in every way, yet, of course, without sin. And so his presence in heaven is as our mediator, as the the only son of Adam, the only human being who is worthy to advocate for us before the Father, who preserves our place in God's grace and who directs his Holy Spirit to come to our help and to aid us in all things in life. So if you think about the controversy that shows up in the Heidelberg Catechism, 
You can see why the church has clung so tenaciously to the true teachings of Christ's two natures post-resurrection. Because if we lose that, then we lose our own flesh and blood, our true mediator, and all the benefits that come with having him at the right hand of God the Father on our behalf. And now let's consider some of the benefits of having him at the right hand. What does it mean that Christ our mediator has truly ascended in the flesh? Well, it means in the first place we see in answer 49, he is our advocate in heaven before the Father. We have a mediator at the throne of the Father. Whenever you have major decisions in life, you want to have your representative at the table, at the bargaining table, where things are happening. In the negotiations at the United Nations regarding world political events, Canada wants its representative at the table. We want our guy there to speak for us on our behalf. You can think of the example of the Israelites in the Old Testament who had Moses go before God the Father as the intermediary, as the mediator. He stood before God and he urged God to remember his promises and to have mercy on the unfaithful and ungrateful Israelites. You want to have your mediator where it matters. Well, in Jesus Christ, we have a mediator who represents us. He's our own flesh and blood. He's a human being. He experienced the weakness of our human flesh. He was born under law. He experienced temptations to sin and spiritual battles that we, the same kind that we are engaged on on this earth. He knows our struggles and he brings our cries before the throne of God, our cries for help and for mercy. But Christ does even more. Because whereas we have no legitimate claim to anything before the throne of God, because of our sinful rebellion, we have no claim for mercy or grace in ourselves. Christ does. He's human like us, but he has earned the right to God's favor for us. He can stand on the merits of his perfect sacrifice for our sins. He can stand on his perfect obedience. He can stand on his work to appease the Father and gain his delight. And so he wins for us favor in the sight of God and a commitment from the Father to work all things for our good. Through him, the Father hears us, the Father cares for us, and the Father blesses us. We have a good, we have the right advocate in heaven. That's one benefit. Another benefit is that Christ is present at the right hand of God as the first fruits of the resurrection and ascension into glory. When the Father lifted up Jesus Christ from this earth, when he lifted him up, first from the grave and then from the earth to his right hand, that place of, of favor and acceptance, of power and influence. Then he showed the whole world, and certainly he showed us as people as well, that he accepted the work of Christ. If he didn't accept the work of Christ, he wouldn't have raised him up to that place. And so when he did, he demonstrated to everything that the work that Christ had done on our behalf was good, that it was complete that it was acceptable before him. He demonstrated that sin had been atoned for, that his wrath had been removed, 
And that humanity could now dwell with him as humanity now dwells with him in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, humanity had once dwelt with the Father, dwelt with the triune God in the flesh. Adam and Eve had walked with God in the garden. But ever since the fall into sin, that had not been possible apart from the work of Jesus Christ. Since Christ, who is the first fruits of the resurrection, has a place at the right hand of God, then so do we. Then so do we who believe in him. So do we, his church, his people. As the, as John foresees in the book of Revelation in chapter 21, now the dwelling place of God is with man and he will live with them. All that is made a reality for us, brothers and sisters, in the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God. And finally, the bodily presence of Christ at the right hand of God confirms to us that our lives are not to be caught up with things on this this earth, but rather things of the eternal kingdom of heaven. What I mean is not that we become, as has been said before, so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good, the criticism that has been leveled against Christians. Instead, we become so heavenly minded that we are of profound earthly good. The ascended Christ sends us his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to equip and empower the church to seek the priorities of God's heaven. We become caught up with the priorities of what God is doing from his throne in heaven, moving forward history to accomplish his purpose, building up his church, increasing his glory, exalting his son, saving people from darkness and sin. Because Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God and he sends his spirit to us, that becomes our priority as well. We don't have to live in the the selfish, this worldliness. We're pulled out of that and into the world of heaven, a world of love, a world of sacrifice, a world of praise, of giving, of serving, of profound joy and abiding security through our great mediator. The bodily ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is not only a reality for us, it is a profound reality. When Jesus Christ ascended into heaven 2,000 years ago, he did so lifting up his hands in blessing. Those hands have not dropped in those years And we continue to experience the profound blessings that he pours pours out upon us through his spirit until he returns again. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.